This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. episode two of Inside Oz. I'm your host Neil Thompson. First of all, just want to say I hope that you guys really enjoyed the first episode covering the routine, and if you've done the really bizarre Star Wars thing of not starting at the beginning, you can always go back and listen to the first episode, and I'll give you the details of how to do that at the end of this episode. So I'm not going to mess about with the start of this episode, we're just going to go straight into it. This is episode two, Visits Conjugal and Otherwise. It was broadcast on July 14th, 1997, so that was just two days after the first episode. Holds an 8.5 on IMDb. The episode was once again written by Tom Fontana, and was directed by Nick Gomez. Now, Nick Gomez is a name that I've seen pop up a few times when I've been watching various TV shows. He's worked previously with Fontana on Homicide Life on the Street, where he directed six episodes. He's also worked on The Sopranos. He also directed three episodes of The Shield, two episodes of The 4400, one episode of True Blood, if you like that kind of thing, uh, one episode of the relaunch of Knight Rider, four episodes of Flash Forward, two episodes of Damages, one episode of Awake, which is a show that I really, really liked, which got cancelled well before its time. He's also worked on the Netflix version of Daredevil as well, where he's also directed one episode there. Now, something that I didn't talk about in episode one, and I don't really understand why I didn't, but just want to talk about the opening credits as well. What you see is there are no faces shown in the opening credits, but all the characters that we see are from the main cast. The Oz tattoo that you see being done is a legit tattoo as well, and Tom Fontana has that on his arm. The story goes is that nobody wanted to get it, so Fontana just stepped in and said, yeah, fine, I'll go and do it. Something I found out from one of the DVD commentaries as well is that the tear on the right side of the logo, apparently in uh, prison circles, that gives the indication that you've killed somebody. Whether that's in prison or not, that's, I don't know if that really matters. It, yeah, Somebody's killed somebody. We open up and Augustus screams, Fuck! That was kind of rude of you. It's a four-letter word. Rape is a four-letter word. Wife is a four-letter word. So is love. Oh, I see. You're doing a love theme monologue. That's all right, then. I'll let you off. Fuck is a curse. So is love. And I don't just mean boys and girls. I'm talking friends. I'm talking family. So we see Nina heading down to the morgue where he has to identify Ortolani's body. We see that the body is horrifically burned. This is probably one of those cases where you would have to be officially identified by dental records. We also get a quick flashback of Johnny Post dropping the lip match from episode one just 
to remind everybody of what's going on. We then move into the library and Leo wants to know what happened to Ortolani. So this whole scene here just kind of acts as, like I say, a recap for episode one. We also get Tim McManus explaining why Dino was in the hole and he also explains why he adds him sedated after... Healy brings that up. McManus says that it wouldn't have made any difference whether he was sedated or not after Healy's officers had beaten Ortolani up so badly. The sort of a blame game ensues between the two, with Healy saying that it could have been one of the gangs. Leo brings everything back around and explains that Lenny Barano, who we're meeting for the first time, played by Skip Sudeth, I hope I've pronounced that right, and he's been tasked with finding out who did it before Nino does, before the governor sends in the feds, and before we have a full-scale riot on our hands. So... That's another Riot reference for anybody who's keeping score. We then move straight into Lenny's investigation, and first up on his questioning sheet is Vern Schillinger. Hey guys, it's just me again. When I was putting this episode together, I realised that I'd forgot to mention that Schillinger's speech here contains some very racist and offensive language, so I just wanted to quickly put this warning here just before I play this clip. So let's just try this clip again here. This is Schillinger getting interviewed by Lenny. Niggers did, Ortolani. You got any evidence to prove that? Yeah, right, like you guys ever need evidence. You hear one of them admit to killing him? No. But think about it. Who else is there? Latinos? No. Burning isn't a spick style. Niggers burn things. You could have done Ortolani. Yeah, sure. There's no valentines between me and Dino. But when I kill a man... It's because he's standing in the way of my constitutional rights. I kill to protect what's mine. What God has given me. The Sicilians understand that. The rest of these fucks have cut him in for a pair of sneakers, for a fucking cigarette. They are animals. So Schillinger gives his whole speech about protecting his rights in front of a US flag that they have hanging in the interrogation room. It seems odd that they have a US flag just randomly hanging in the interrogation room, but the way that it's framed and the way that Schillinger delivers his lines to the camera, it, it's sort of like a political campaign film. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. constitutional rights. I kill to protect what's mine. What God has given me. The Sicilians understand that. The rest of these fucks have cut a man for a pair of sneakers, for a fucking cigarette. They are animals. We cut to a fight between Markstrom and D'Angelo in Emerson City, which is backing up exactly what Schilling has just been saying in his speech from the previous scene. We see Diane and Rebido up on the top deck as well, checking up on Beecher, where we find out that he hasn't come out of his pod for days for any reason. His only safe place is his bed in this chrysalis, this ball that he's made for himself, and now that's been invaded too. Schillinger comes over and does his best impression of a concerned cellmate, and Diane tells him to get lost. We flash back to Beecher getting branded from the first episode. You see a lot of that in this first episode. There's lots of little flashbacks just to remind everybody of what's been going on so far. It's strange, kind of strange that they do that, because this, like I said, this is 
coming just two days after the original broadcast of the first episode. So you would think if anybody's coming back for episode two, it would still be fresh in their minds of what's happened. Diane offers encouragement by telling Beecher that she could tell him that he is safe, but that would be a lie, so that's some great people skills there, Diane. She then tells Beecher to go and see Sister Pete to arrange a visit from his wife, as they haven't seen each other since the sentencing. We don't get told exactly how long that space between the sentencing to this point in time is, but it's probably... Well, if Beach has been in his pod for a few days, the amount of time that it takes somebody from sentencing to get to prison is probably a couple of weeks. So we're probably looking maybe three weeks, maybe to about a month. We then get to see Beecher going to see Sister Peter Marie, who seems delighted to see that he's actually married. She then explains to Beecher that on occasions that there are people who try and bring in, whether it's hookers or mistresses, and pretend that they're their wives. She says that only happens once. Beecher returning to his pod, but in the short time that he's been away, Schellinger has already come back in and invaded his safe space. So, literally, just by making the decision to leave his pod once. Probably a bad decision for Beecher in this case. Schillinger presses the issue as to why Beecher has been to see Sister Pete, and he manages to get it out of him that Beecher has managed to arrange a conjugal visit, or as Schillinger calls it, a conjugal visit, and he's so proud of this joke. <laughs> you can tell that he's be- had this one stored up for a long time, and he's finally had a chance to use this joke. Schillinger says that Beecher didn't ask his permission, and that Schillinger makes all of Beecher's decisions for him, and he makes Beecher ask him if he can fuck his wife. Beecher can't bring himself to say fuck at first, but he does the second time when pressed to do so, and Schillinger just keeps pressing him to say it louder and louder and louder. Beecher then screams at the top of his voice, Turns out that these glass pods are not soundproof as we see the guards turn around in the background. I thought J.K. Simmons was really great in this scene. His conjugal visit joke is so bad that it's funny in its own way, but he also manages to keep up his god complex over Beecher. We move into a different part of the prison where we meet Beecher's wife Genevieve for the first time. Genevieve here, played by Susan Floyd. We see that Genevieve is obviously scared of the prison itself and she's clearly struggling with the change. She says to the guard on duty, I'm here to see my and then she stutters a bit and says to buy a speech she can't even manage to bring herself to say that, that Beecher is her husband anymore. She gets asked if she's transporting any weapons, any drugs, any alcohol, and she quite logically asks the guard if she was, why would she say yes? It's probably a question I would ask in that situation as well. The officer on duty just says that the state says he has to ask, so he asks. Even he doesn't understand the logic behind it, really. We cut to the visiting room where Beecher is waiting, and as soon as the door opens, he turns around quick as a flash, and he's got this little bouquet of flowers. It's He's like a kid going on his first date. It's really quite sweet, in a way. Husband and wife share a kiss, but there's this understandable awkwardness to the whole thing. Jenny tells Beecher about a painting his daughter has done of the family in the house. She's facing away the whole time, but turns to him to tell him that he isn't in the picture. The only time that she can look him in the face is to tell him that she <laughs> he's no longer part of the family. Cheers, love. They have another kiss, but Jenny's kind of standoffish this time, and she tries to change the subject about the food that she's brought in. Beecher says that he just wants her to hold him. This is the closest that Beecher has felt to being human for as long as he's been in Oz, and he's just... He's trying to keep things as normal as he can, but it's clear to see that things have changed between the pair of them. We get a passage of time to the next day, and Beecher and another inmate come out of their respective visiting rooms, and they're going to get cavity searched. 
The other inmate, whose name we never actually find out, drugs are found on him. I should say in him, as we get an officer saying, hello there. It's great that this officer can keep a little bit of a sense of humour when his, most of his job involves looking up men's rectums all day. We see Jenny leaving as an officer takes aside a woman who's been smuggling drugs in. At first, Jenny thinks that it's her that the officer is wanting to talk to, but she sees quickly that it isn't. Once she realises that it's not her who needs to be spoken to, she's out of there quick as a flash. This is the only appearance of Beach's wife in the series, but I'm quite certain that she is mentioned again. We'll see what happens as we go through the series. Back in Beach's pod, and Schillinger has found some photos that Beecher had hidden underneath his mattress. Schillinger says that his wife is dead, and we find out that he has two teenage sons at this point. Says that he's an icon to them because he went to prison for his beliefs. He also said that they would do anything for him if he asked them to. He turns to Beecher and he asks if maybe his family should meet up with Beecher's family. At this point, Beecher takes the photos away from Schillinger and with a tear in his eye, he tears them up. He isn't looking at the photos when he's doing it. I always felt that there were two things going on here. One, he's tearing up the photos so that Schillinger can't look at them again and continue to play games with him. But he also knows deep down that his marriage is over, based off of the visit that he's had with Jenny. We then get an Augustus monologue, which explains the origin of the term Prague. I know I w- briefly went over what Prague was last episode, but I think Augustus sums it up better here. Bitch, her, me tag, shim. Here in Oz, we call him Prags. I don't know where it comes from. You make a man your Prague, he's your Prague for life. It's like the old days when people didn't get divorced. The only way out of marriage is death. We're fair to black and that's the end of Beecher's story for this episode. We come back and we're back in Lenny's interview room, with the American flag still hanging there. So maybe it is a permanent fixture after all. He's interviewing Donald Groves. Lenny says to Groves that he ate his parents, to which Groves you know, very quickly corrects him. No, 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 I, I only ate my mum. I was saving my dad for Thanksgiving. Great line from Lenny saying, ooh, that's festive. He then starts to properly question Groves about Dino's murder. Groves says that he got into trouble for being in the morgue, even though he was he was just looking. It's fine if you just look in. The cannibal can look, as long as he doesn't eat. For that, he was sent to the hull. So there's a little bit of creative license going on here. We don't actually see Groves in the morgue and getting sent to the hole because there's so there's so many characters within Oz. If you was to show every single scenario going on, every single event, even with an hour runtime, that would be difficult to cram everything into an episode, especially when you've only got eight episodes for a series. If you were to show every single thing that happens, you'd run, end up running the problem that The Walking Dead has, where you have a number of episodes which are just filler, compared to episodes that actually move the story along. So we find out that Groves was in the cell next to Dino, but he didn't hear anything when Dino was murdered. He says that Dino had balls because when he was set on fire, but he didn't scream. Presumably, Groves doesn't know about the sedation and says that when Dino was carried out, he smelled like broiled chicken. I had to look up what broiled was, because that's not something that we have in the UK. Well, I say we don't have it. It's not something that we usually have. I'm sure you can find it in your theme restaurants or something. But according to cookthink.com, broiling is a cooking method in which food is cooked directly under high heat. Scallops or steak can be cooked under the broiler, giving them a nice caramelised crust and a juicier interior. So there you go. The picture that they use on their website, you've basically got some eggs in a frying pan underneath the grill, so it's kind of like frying with grilling at the same time. But that's enough from the inside Oz cooking school for today. So we're back in Emerald City. 
city now and the inmates are watching TV. This is the first time that we see Governor James Devlin, played by Jelko Ivanovich. In researching for this, I found that the Governor turns up in a lot more episodes than I actually realised. I thought he would just an ap- appeared in one or two per series, but he actually appears in 27 episodes across the series. He's also worked on Homicide and Life on the Street in the past as well, where he appeared in 37 episodes. Looking at his IMDb page as well, his first credited role is in The Edge of Night, a TV series from 1956, which is quite impressive, seeing as he wasn't born until 1957. To me, though, other than Governor James Devlin, he'll always be the dog psychiatrist from the fourth series of Frasier. So Devlin's on the TV saying he's just passed a measure eliminating conjugal visits for prison. As soon as he says this, everybody, like a Westlife key change, stands up from the seats. They all go to see Sister Pete to get a conjugal visit sorted before they're eliminated. She's great here once again. She's not taking any shit from anybody. It says that yeah, she's counted the pencils, and if any are missing or used as a weapon, nobody gets a visit. So I wonder why she isn't the warden in ours. While all this is going on as well, you see Augusta struggling to get through the queue, because obviously he's in his wheelchair. Something else I noticed as well, listening back to the edit of episode one, I didn't mention that Augustus was in a wheelchair, but you, you can all see that he's in a wheelchair, so there you go. So now we get the flashback to Augustus Hill and his arrest. So the flashback opens up, and he is pounding his missus very hard and he's gonna bugger up that wall with that headrest if he isn't careful. He's hitting that headrest on that wall so hard that he can't hear the police ramming his door with their little battering ram. He fires a shot at the police but he then legs it out of the window, completely stark as apart from his socks. He tries to escape over the rooftop. He ends up shooting a cop but is very quickly caught by another one soon afterwards. As they're arresting Augustus we find out that what the cop that he shot is dead. So one of the arresting officers that's handcuffed him says to him, you're dead. And he then takes him to the rooftop's edge and throws Augustus to the street below, which is lucky it wasn't as high as what it Well, you can debate amongst yourselves whether Augustus was lucky that he wasn't higher up. Would he have been better off just being thrown off for falling to his death or falling and just becoming paralysed? We then cut back to Adebisi and Hill filling in their forms. Adebisi thinks that because Augustus is crippled is that he can't have sex. Augustus very quickly corrects him on this. Adebisi seems surprised by this. Augustus explains that he can still function but he doesn't have any sensation down there so he's doing it purely for his partner. It's quite a nice scene between the two of them really because and this isn't to say that all black prisoners should hang around with each other but you would assume that they would do but this is one of the rare occasions where you actually see Adebisi and Augustus interacting with each other they just tend to hang with different crowds the scene closes with Augustus and his partner having a visit and it ends with them having some less painful sex we move on to act two and Lenny is interviewing Jefferson Keane this time he asks Jefferson if he's ever had any run-ins with Dino as he used to run the kitchen that Keane worked in he tries to get a raise out of Keane by saying, you know, did Dino ever say, boy, do this, boy, do that, whether that ever pissed him off. Keane isn't biting, though. He, he can kind of see that Lenny's trying to provoke him. Lenny brings up that Dino put Keane's brother into the hospital, which is Billy Keane from the shower fight from episode one. Keane still isn't taking the bait. Lenny then asks Keane if he's married or not. Jefferson says he isn't, but he has got a girl on the outside and says that if he finds out that Keane had anything to do with Dino's murder, that he'll bury him in Gen Pop. We then cut to the kitchen where Johnny Post and Keane are sorting out a box of oranges, so it's nice to see that even though conjugal visits are getting eliminated, that prisoners are still getting the vitamin C. Keane tells Post to say nothing if he gets questioned about Dino's murder. D'Angelo comes in, says that he's running the kitchen now, and until they find out who killed Dino, that 
there's going to be no dealing of contraband. We then cut back to Emerald City and we see Keen sitting on the stairs watching the Muslims praying while Adebisi says that he's going to be questioned. Keen tells him to be quiet. Turns out that he's not actually looking at the Muslims, he's looking out of the window at his girlfriend Mavis, who's just wearing a coat. Great little bit of fake out direction. We then get the flashback to Jefferson Keane's crime, where he shoots a couple as they're coming out of the church, having just got married. And Augustus gives us the information about when Jefferson was convicted and tells us that he's in life without the possibility of paroles, same as what Artelani was. So this is for a premeditated murder. King goes to Tim McManus, tells him that he wants to get married. Good old Tim McManus, just wisecracks to anyone in particular. King says to Mavis, completely deadpan, so he either didn't get the joke or he didn't find it funny. It's up to you to decide which one it was. McManus says that she sounds like a remarkable woman for doing so, despite the fact that Keane isn't getting out of Oz. Says that he'll make the arrangements. Cut to McManus talking with Leo, who isn't having any of it. He says this is prison McManus, not the Elvis Chapel. McManus says it could ease some tension, while Leo says it could be seen as showing favouritism to Keane, who he doesn't think has done anything to deserve it. Miss Manus thinks that it could turn Keane around, but Leo still isn't going to allow it. Leo says that he believes in the sanctity of marriage, to which he says it is a holy ritual, a sacred bond between a man, a woman, and God. A marriage is when a husband and wife live together and sleep in the same bed. So this is where we get to see kind of where Leo's beliefs lie. He's kind of got that fundamentalist Christian element to him, which is fine. If that's what gets him through the day. McManus says that Keane lives in Emerald City, so it's his decision. Leo says that the lobby is under his jurisdiction and to try bringing her through the front door. So we see that McManus and Leo are still at loggerheads on certain issues. We cut to the gym where we see Markstrom is telling Keane about how the contraband flows stopped. At this point, Tim McManus walks up and gives Keane the news about how Leo isn't allowing the wedding. Keane says that he's going to lose Mavis and that McManus went back on his word, and a man who can't keep his word isn't worth shit to him. From this point, Jefferson Keane goes to see Kareem Saeed. So this is a complete turnaround from where these two were with each other in episode one. Keane is laying out his side of the story to Saeed and says that he wants Saeed to plead his case for him, says that he hasn't got the words like he does. He says that he can get Saeed anything that he wants, but Saeed says to him that there is nothing that he needs and he just wants Keane to put his trust in Allah. Now in this scene, Saeed is holding a book by W.E.B. Dubois. I had to look up who this was. It took me a little bit of time to actually find out what this book was because the source that's used to transfer to the DVD is from the original film tape, so it's a little blur in places, but I did manage to track down the actual book that he's holding here. It's currently on sale for Amazon for around £6. But yes, the book is by William Edward Burghard Dubois, who was an American sociologist, he was a historian, civil rights activist, pan-Africanist, also an author and a writer. It lived up from 1868 up until 1963. Following on from this, Saeed meets up with Leo on the stairwell, but we can't actually hear what's been said between the two of them. We then cut to Leo's office where he's sat there with McManus again. He says that he's changed his mind because Saeed came to see him. McManus sees this as damaging to his credibility with the inmates, whereas Leo explains to him that because he's doing this, Saeed sort of owes him one, and that Saeed has promised to control the drugs and the Dino situation. Leo then asks McManus why he didn't tell him about Mavis being pregnant. McManus, with a very blank look on his face, says that he didn't know, and Leo just says to him, so much for your credibility. We then cut to the office of Father Ray Mukada, who's played by B.D. Wong. Wong's most famous roles prior to Oz were probably, uh, he had a little bit part in The Karate Kid Part 2, he was also in Father of the Bride with Steve Martin, he was also in some film about some dinosaur theme park, I don't know if anybody ever saw that one or not though. So Keane's in the office here trying to get his head around the change of heart from Leo 
and Ray explains to him how the wedding is going to work and he explains to Jefferson that Mavis will be in one location while he's in another location at the same time so they're kind of doing a simulcast wedding we see Jefferson's side of the wedding take place with Adebisi standing in place for Mavis and you've also got Augustus singing uh, Happy Together by the Turtles over this as well man this is some bullshit Jefferson the warden was very specific about how this is going to work so what's this proxy shit well, you'll be here, and your fiancé will be at your local Baptist church. You'll both be exchanging vows at the same time, and each of you will have someone standing in for the other person. Well, Father, don't this seem fucked up to you? If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, to ease my mind, you, imagine how the Dean world Davis would be, to be so mind. very fine, Again. so happy together, Mavis Woodson, so happy to together. To With the power vested in me, I pronounce you husband and wife. You're not going to kiss the bride? <laughs> <laughs> For better or for worse? Shit. Don't get much worse than this. Following this, we see Markstrom bringing a letter and a photo from Mavis from her part of the wedding. Not sure quite how he got hold of the letter. Presumably he works in the mail room or something, so he would have to go through everything, but that isn't necessarily made clear to us. Keen shows it to Saeed and say assalamu alaikum to each other, basically meaning peace be unto you. We then move on to two different scenes which kind of play off of each other, but the way that the cut kind of makes it awkward to talk about is so I'm going to talk about one and then the other. So in what I'm calling the first scene... Leo invites McManus over for dinner, but McManus rejects the offer, saying that he's got a date. Leo seems surprised by this and goes home, but not before getting McManus to agree to come over another night. So, even though earlier on they were at loggerheads with each other, you can see that he is... They do get along deep down, but on certain prison agendas they don't necessarily agree. So this is Leo sort of dropping his guard a little bit. McManus just munches on some crisps, or if you're in the US, some potato chips. And in quote-unquote scene number two... We see Diane and Lenny are in the break room. Diane's talking about how she sometimes sleeps at the prison as she lives two hours away and that if she could get a job close to home, that she would and that she doesn't see her daughter as much as what she would like to. Lenny says, why don't you get a job close to home? But Diane says that, you know, if the Chevy plant was hiring, she would get a job there, but unfortunately they're not. Which is something that happened in the mid-90s. A lot of the American car manufacturers did go through a period of downsizing and relocated all their manufacturing jobs overseas, which hit the state of Michigan quite hard, which was covered in the Michael Moore documentary, The Big One, in the mid-90s. It's an interesting watch. If you can hunt that down, go and watch it. Into Act 3, and we come back up on an inmate in the hospital, and we get a flashback to the stabbing that happened in Episode 1. This is the victim that Leo referred to in his initial conversation with McManus. We find out that this is Miguel Alvarez, played by Kirk Acevedo. Now, Kirk Acevedo has quite an extensive TV career after Oz, which I'll go into in another episode. Father Ray approaches him, and we find out that Miguel and his partner is over at the women's prison, and that she's also pregnant and due to give birth any time now. Ray says that he can arrange for Alvarez to be at the birth, but Alvarez doesn't seem to care about this. Ray says that Miguel will probably be paroled in two years, and that he needs to be a father. Miguel says about how his own father is in Oz, in fact he 
just standing just over there on the other side of the infirmary, we also find out that his grandfather is in Oz too. Ray says that he gets that Miguel had a, a tough upbringing, but that he needs to accept his responsibilities for bringing a life into the world, and he gets in Miguel's face about it. It's quite intimidating, really. You wouldn't expect it to be coming from the prison chaplain, but the environment has kind of sort of made him toughen up a little bit maybe. We get a quick scene between Ray and Leo in which Leo says that Miguel will be going to M-City once he's out of the hospital. Ray mentions that he's been talking about Miguel's dad and granddad but we find out that his dad has no tongue and that his granddad is in solitary. We cut to solitary confinement as Ray goes to see Grandpa Alvarez, first name Ricardo, he's played by Thomas Millian who's sadly no longer with us. He passed away March 22nd, 2017. He had quite an extensive film career, though, um, with 120 credits to his name. Ray says to him that he would like him to go and talk to Miguel about the responsibilities and break the, as he puts it, break the cycle of shitty parenting. Ricardo says he was 18 when convicted, so he had kids at a very young age, and says that he didn't see his own son until he was 18 when he came to us as well. We also get the story about how Ricardo ended up in solitary. Eduardo, who is... Miguel's father, he was mouthing off to to a Haitian, who then cut out Eduardo's tongue as revenge, so Ricardo cut out the heart of the Haitian. (laughs) Ricardo seems justified in his actions. We cut to the general visiting room of Oz, where Ricardo goes to meet Miguel. Miguel doesn't recognise his own grandfather, which is quite upsetting. Ricardo shouts, you know, come here, and just from the tone of that shout, we see the colour drop from Miguel's face. Although they can't have possibly had much interaction, it's a shout that he clearly recognises somehow from being young. Miguel tries to act the tough guy in the situation, but he gets a slap across the face. Ricardo holds Miguel by the jaw and asks if he knows who he is, to which Miguel says yes. He's like a little boy, all of a sudden, complete opposite from the street stuff that he was trying to play a moment ago. don't know if you just had my wrist just click then as well. We get another of Augustus's monologues, followed by Miguel holding a baby doll. We can assume he hasn't got kids at this point in time, because the whole time that he's holding the baby, he's got a cigarette in his mouth, and he doesn't really know how to hold the baby either. We're back in the interrogation room, and this time Lenny's talking to Bob Rebida. I'm just going to play the clip here. I think this does it more justice than I ever could. What a lie. He committed suicide. Suicide? How could he be tied down on restraints and set himself on fire? That's impossible. Even so, he committed suicide. What makes you say that? God told me. God told you? God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. But he's God. What can I say? That I'm busy, that I'm in the shower? He knows. We talking about a burning bush here? No. It's more like a strobe. A little too flashy, a little cheesy for my taste. And God told you Ordelani committed suicide? Well that the kid wanted to die and consciously or on he set up the circumstances where he'd be killed. Guy happened to tell you who did it? No. I didn't think so. But he told me to tell you to tell Nino Shibeta not to seek revenge. Why didn't you tell Shibeta? Just because I talk to God doesn't mean I'm crazy. We then cut to Nino who's been visited by his son Peter and we find out that his wife Angie is ill and that she hasn't got long basically. Nino asks if the doctor is Jewish or not and to get one if needs be. Peter starts to cry but Nino tells him not to. 
It's almost as if not he nor any of his family can be seen to be showing any kind of weakness. Peter says that Dino's funeral is the next day, and Nino says that there will be vengeance. We then cut to Nino getting cavity searched, so this is not just for conjugal visits. We then cut to Nino's arrest, where we see that he was arrested when he was leaving a restaurant, so he isn't put away for any sort of murder that we know of, at least, anyway. We get the information from Augustus, the same that we do with every other prisoner in ours. We find out that Nino was convicted on December 12th, 1995, for two counts of conspiracy to commit murder. And his sentence, 120 years, and he is up for parole in 70. We cut back to McManus's office again. It's getting a lot of action in this episode. McManus says that he's going to arrange for Nino to go and visit his wife in hospital. Nino, he says that he is grateful, but as he puts it, he's cynical by nature. McManus explains that it must be hard for her being ill without Nino being able to say goodbye when the time comes. There's an interesting lighting job in this scene as well that I really liked. Nino has a shadow of the office blinds of him, even though they're going technically the wrong way. It's symbolic of the prison bars, while McManus is obviously facing the other way, and he's got this this heavenly glow around him. So Nino shows that he's definitely cynical in the situation, and he says, you know, what does McManus want out of it? To which McManus just says that he wants his continued patience and that nobody wants a riot. Score another one on your riot bingo card. Nino says to McManus that they don't have a deal. Even with his wife on her deathbed, Mafia Honor takes over, and he wants justice for Dino more than anything else. We see Ryan comes to Emerald City, and much like everybody in episode one, he's been given a sponsor to sort of break him in to the uh, community. And he's been given Schillinger as his sponsor. Says that he doesn't need any help, which Schillinger seems happy enough with, and offers an alliance with the Brotherhood, as he puts it, and they shake hands on this. Ryan asks whose pod he's been put in, and Schillinger term tells him that it was Dino's. Now, I don't think that this would actually happen, It's a shocking bit of admin letting one guy into the pod of the same person who tried to kill that person in the first place and who has recently been murdered themselves. I don't know. I understand that it's probably been done, you know, a little bit of dramatic effect, but if we were talking about this happening in the real world, there is no way that Ryan would have been put in this pod. We see Ryan having a quick look at some scars that he has, you know, whether they're from surgery from the attack originally or not, we don't know. It could be a surgery that he's had uh, whether when he was a child, possibly. It's yet to be made clear. So Ryan then comes out of his pod, and we see a little visual exchange between him and Keen. D'Angelo then comes up to Ryan and tells him that Nino wants to see him. We cut into Nino's pod, and we see he's once again sat up high on his Buddha position, peeling an orange, so he's Presumably got that from the kitchen earlier on. Hopefully not been um, laced with any poison from Johnny Post. And he tells Ryan that he wants to know who killed Dino. Ryan asks, you know, whether D'Angelo needs to be there or not, and he's excused. Nino says that he's willing to forgive Ryan's past indiscretions. So, did Nino order the hit on Ryan originally, or is that unconnected to the issues between Ryan and Dino? Whatever it is, Nino is aware of what Ryan has done. He says that he wants information on who killed Dino. Ryan is very adamant that he's not upset about Dino being killed, but says that if he hears anything, he will come to Nino straight away. He leaves and D'Angelo comes back in, and Nino says that Ryan knows. He's seen straight through Ryan's bullshit. Ryan goes to see Jefferson and says that if they give up Johnny Post about the whole thing, then it will go away. Keane says that he isn't going to rat out on a brother and thinks that it's just, if they just relax, it will just 
go away naturally. It's kind of like when Homer Simpson thought by hiding underneath some coats, everything would work out fine when he went to college. During the exam, I'll hide under some coats and hope that somehow everything will work out. Ryan says that Sicilians don't let things fade, so that's kind of another window maybe into his dealings with... Um, organized crime on the outside. Nina says to D'Angelo to get word to Lenny about bringing in Ryan for questioning. So that's something that hadn't been alluded to beforehand. The people that are being questioned are either being sent there by Nina in the first place or he is getting the information that's being given to Lenny filtered back down to him. We cut to Lenny and Ryan in the interrogation room, having a laugh and a smoke. Ryan says that the St. Pauli section of Hamburg is the red light district. Turns out that's actually true. Lenny then proceeds to tell Ryan what he has on Dino's murder already. I'm fairly sure he shouldn't really be telling him this sort of information. Surely you would have to keep all the information that you've gathered from everybody that you've been questioning confidential to them. But he seems quite happy to just be blurting it across to anybody. So as he's explaining it to Ryan... Lenny's connecting the dots and he alludes to it being Ryan who organised it in the first place and says that he'll get Ryan's name soon enough. He knows that Ryan didn't do the deed but tells him to, you know, either give him up now or shut him up soon, basically ordering a hit on the person who did carry out the crime. Ryan returns to Nina, tells him that he knows who the killer is. We then cut to Ribido playing cards and Donald Groves appears up behind him behind his shoulder. Ribido looks quite worried as Groves appears on his shoulder. He's already had his hand licked in the previous episode, after all. We then see McManus giving Nino the news that his wife has passed away, and he takes it surprisingly well and just asks to be left alone. We then cut to Nino and D'Angelo walking in a stairwell. Nino's giving the instructions about what he wants for his wife's funeral, but he eventually he breaks down and starts to cry. He's he's kept up this this wall for as long as he possibly can do, but he just can't hold it in anymore. It's the first real time that he's let his emotions get the better of him. But he quickly composes himself and we enter another corridor and we see that the Italians have got Johnny Post tied up. Nino asks, you know, who paid you to kill Dino? But Post isn't giving anything away and he says that he fucked Dino up the arse before killing him. I don't see why you would say that. He's he's already going to kill you. This isn't really helping things, buddy. Nino says to kill him and start with his dick. Johnny Post, he goes down in a blaze of F-bombs. We get Augustus's final monologue of the episode, which is all about climaxing, and in this scene he's getting covered in it's either white paint or it's double cream or something, I don't know. It must have been a nightmare to film if he managed to fluff his lines. We then cut back to Emerald City, where the inmates are watching a news report, and it's here where we find out that Johnny Post has been killed and he was found in a broom cupboard mutilated with his fingers missing and several heart stab wounds. And for some reason we get the confirmation that the measure on conjugal visits has passed. I'm not really sure why this was tacked on to the end of a murder story, but here. Yeah. Augustus closes the episode saying, Love will always and forever break your heart, and we fade to black to the credits. Another inmate at Oswald State Penitentiary was murdered yesterday, the second such incident in as many weeks. John Post, a drug dealer serving life, was found in a utility closet at the prison, mutilated, his fingers missing, and several stab wounds to his heart. Authorities are investigating both murders, but still have no suspects. In a related story, state legislators have overwhelmingly passed a bill banning conjugal visits between the inmates and their wives. Governor James Devlin has hailed the vote as a victory for law-abiding citizens. And love? Well, if sex is sweet and death is bitter, Love is both. Love will always and forever break your heart. 
So that concludes episode two, and much like in episode one, we have a body count of two, which was Nino's wife Angie and Johnny Post. My MVP for the episode as well, it's got to be Nino Shibeta. He kept up an iron will right up until the very end of the episode where he's lost another person in his life. So I am going to wrap up this episode by once again just telling you if there is anything that you liked about the episode, if there is anything that you didn't like about the episode, any other comments that you want to make about the episode at all, you can email into insideozpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at insideozpodcast. You can also follow it on Instagram at insideozpodcast as well. Thank Thank you to everybody who has started to follow the show already i really appreciate it anywhere where you can leave a review for the podcast please do so obviously if you leave me a five star review that'll help me get up those charts a little bit more and it'll help out with all the algorithms on the various podcasting platforms if you missed the first episode in which we covered season one episode one the routine you can go back and listen to episode one on apple podcasts you can also find that on stitcher on soundcloud And I'll also post all the other information on the social media pages. I'm going to leave you today. We will be back soon with Season 1, Episode 3, God's Chilling.